Father, we would come to you asking for wisdom, for the days are evil. And you have given to all of us one gift and to another, another gift. And there are some with several gifts. We'd ask that you would empower them to use those gifts for your glory and even for the benefit of not only those in the church, but for those outside the church. You are a kind and gracious and giving God. You are also just. But you have enabled us to carry out your will here on this planet. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be submissive to your will in exercising those gifts. So as we learn more about them, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit. Empower us, Lord, again to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as previously stated a few weeks ago, God does not want us to be ignorant about a few things, three in specific in the New Testament. The first one is God's plans for Israel. He doesn't want us to be ignorant about that, that he still has a plan. There's still a a glorious time that is ahead for the nation of Israel. It even says in Scripture that all Israel will be saved here in the future. And that is in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. It's the fact that Israel was disobedient, and because of that, they fell under a judgment, and God does not want us to be ignorant about that, and that there is a plan in the future, a future hope that they have, just like we do. And that's the second thing God does not want us to be ignorant about, is our future hope, the second coming, the eternal state with Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. And the third thing is in chapter 12, he does not want us to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. Now, I've already covered this. And certainly the gifts are used to glorify God. That's without question. They're also used to unify believers. We are all different, but we all play a role. And we cannot operate effectively without everyone participating in their use of the gifts. Now, if you'll just uh, pardon me a moment. I'm still getting used to this uh, Zoom and the broadcasting here. But I think I have... Uh, Zoom, and there's audio on there, and I need to mute that. So I'm going back, and there we are. Okay, back to the message. So all of those things are true. They're used to unify believers. We are all different, but they all play a role, and we're all members of one body as we participate in using these gifts. Now, the gifts are given to unify us because we're all different, and they're used in for purposes of diversity. Not everybody can do everything. So people are called to specific jobs. And also we're independent upon or interdependent upon each other for the exercise of these particular gifts. I did cover that. And now we're going to pick it back up in verse 12. It says, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ, for we are all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. And it's through the spirit of God that we are unified, and it's also through the spirit of God that we are endowed with the spiritual gifts. And so that's what he's communicating here in verse 12 and 13. The diversity part comes up in verse 14 through 19. It says, now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not be for, the re- uh, for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if, you, if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not 
for that reason, cease to be a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? Now, you read into this, or you read out of this, I should say, what is implied, what is behind the scenes. And apparently the Corinthian church, they were comparing themselves to others. They were saying, well, I don't have this particular gift like them, so I'm probably not part of the body. And so they were probably being self-condemned and that they didn't have any spiritual gift. This is common with the gift of tongues. Some people are taught that if they don't have the gift of tongues, then they're not as spiritual as others in the church. And we will see in a moment that that is the least of all the gifts. But God wanted to make sure that he communicated that you don't want to compare yourself with others who are inside the body who have particular gifts, especially some of those gifts that would be called the sign gifts or gifts that are out front. If it's pastor teacher or if it's some other gift, a gift of wisdom and gift of tongues, all of those things, God said, do not compare yourselves to others when you already have a particular gift. And it is God who has compiled the parts of the body and placed each gift in each person as he sees fit. And so we can desire a gift. We can ask God, God, can I have this particular gift? And he will choose whether to give it to us or not. We are not the ones who choose our own gifts. It is God who does the choosing. And we should also not compare ourselves to others. So, uh, or we should not compare ourselves to others, but we want to make sure that others do not compare themselves to us. We don't want that going either way. And this is the interdependency which is here. Because you do not have my gift, you do not belong to the body of Christ where we look down upon somebody and we say, look, you just don't measure up as far as the gift is concerned. You need to work on your discipleship a little bit. We're not supposed to do that either. So we don't come under self-condemnation where we look at others and we don't possess their gifts, but we don't also turn to others and say, you're not quite spiritual enough. And this is apparently what is implied from the text here. In verse 20, He goes on to say, as it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. And see, that's where somebody would say, well, I have this spiritual gift. I don't need whatever gift you have. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. So that's exactly what they were doing. They were dividing the body according to who had which particular gift, and tongues was really high in their list. They thought that if they spoke in tongues, they were more spiritual. And so everybody desired to speak in tongues. And Paul makes sure to communicate this is not the case. So the one who seems to be the most important in the church is just as important as somebody else who has a gift that is not right out front. So what is implied in these passages is that believers in Corinth were measuring each other up. They were kind of comparing each other and contrasting them. 
And he let them know that they are causing damage to the entire body of Christ, looking at each other in such a fashion. Verse 26, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. So if somebody was feeling downtrodden or depressed because they weren't part of the spiritual group, he says here that if one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. And so we're not to look at each other either in a a down type of way where we think of them lower and we're not to compare ourselves and think of ourselves lower than somebody else. It goes on to say in verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. So he affirms believers in their standing. The importance is not based on the observation of the gifts, but importance is rooted in our position, who we are in Christ. And they were doing just the opposite. They were using human standards, worldly standards to gauge how important somebody was. And God tells us, no, we're all a member of the body of Christ. Now, this is not concerning leadership, but this is concerning our worth in Christ. It's, for instance, our position of leadership inside the church. We know that there's apostles, there's prophets, there's pastors and teachers, there's workers of miracles, which we will get into in the next verse here. And and that's a hierarchical order. It's those who are in the church who have standing as far as decisions being made. But when it comes to the gifts inside the church, the individual who is gifted with the gift of helps is just as important as a pastor. The worth is the same. To compare it in a way to the family would be good. If you have the husband and wife and children, the husband is the head of the wife. I mean, he has the final authority. But he is no better than the wife. The wife is a co-heir of salvation. Same thing with the children. The parents are in a place of authority over the children, and the children are to respect their parents. But the children are very valuable in God's sight, just as valuable as the parents are. And we know that they are the ones who will inherit the kingdom of God. Scripture says that they have a special place in God's sight. Verse 28, and in the church, God has appointed first of all, so you see there's a hierarchical order here as far as leadership is concerned, Apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. And apparently they had this kind of backwards. They had the the order of authority in disarray. And I don't know how they came to a conclusion, but Paul needed to make clear what it was as far as the church and its authority status is. Now, apostles, and each, each one of these people has their particular role. An apostle, he establishes the word of God. The apostles were the ones that gave us the scriptures in the New Testament, the New Testament scriptures. And, of course, Paul authored probably 13 of those books. Some debate that, but it's at least 12 and, and we have that word because of them. So God would speak to them directly and they would issue the scripture. Then prophets, they proclaim the word of God. The apostles establish the word of God. The prophets come along and proclaim the word of God. But who is greater, the apostle or the prophet? Well, the apostle is the one who is greater. But some of the apostles were also prophets like the apostle Paul. 
Then the teachers are to teach the word of God. So the apostles establish the word of God. The prophets proclaim the word of God. The teachers teach the word of God, like it says in Isaiah chapter 28, verses 8 and 9. Line upon line, precept upon precept. Then there are the workers of miracles. They confirm the power of God. Healers show the compassion of the word of God. Those with the gifts of help demonstrate the love of the word of God. And those with the gift of administration show the order of the word of God. And those with the gift of tongues demonstrate the infilling of the word of God. So I'm going to go through those one more time. But as we're given this list, they all have an important place in delivering God's word, however they do it with their particular gift. But there's a hierarchy. So if you don't have an apostle, you go to a prophet. If you don't have a prophet, you go to a teacher. If you don't have a teacher, you go to the worker of miracles. If you don't have a worker of miracles, you go to the one who has the gift of healing or then next to the one who has the gift of helps and administration and then tongues. Tongues is at the bottom. And I believe Paul did this because they were placing tongues right at the top. So again, in this list, apostles establish the word of God. Prophets proclaim the word of God. Teachers teach the word of God. Workers of miracles confirm the power of the word of God. Healers show the compassion of the word of God. Imagine going in if you had the gift of healing and you were able to clear out a hospital, especially a children's hospital. That would certainly be an act of compassion. Then those with the gift of helps demonstrate the love of the word of God because love is a verb. It's an action. We have to do something. And that's what those with the gift of helps, that's what they exemplify. Those with the gift of administration, they... They can see an issue inside the church and they don't even have to write it down. They have it in their mind how things should happen, how things should roll out in order. And we will see in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that our God is a God of order and he wants things done in an orderly fashion. And those with the gift of tongues, they demonstrate the infilling of God. And we know in the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke in tongues. That is evidence that the Holy Spirit is real. He's alive. He's living inside of us. So each equally demonstrates an aspect of the word of God. So they are equal in that respect, but in establishing the authority of the word of God, there is a hierarchy. So there are greater and lesser positions when it comes to authority. Now, I I would like you to recall that in Acts chapter 15, Paul had an issue. He wanted to settle a dispute between himself and the Judaizers, specifically in the church of Galatia. There were those Judaizers who came out of the Pharisaical mode that said, you must be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul disagreed with that, and he disagreed with that vehemently or strongly. He he would almost bring curses down on them if they taught another gospel. And so he went to Jerusalem to have this adjudicated or have it settled or have it judged or have it resolved. That you don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. In Acts chapter 15, I'm going to read through this. I probably will just read through part of it. But this is where Paul went to Jerusalem to consult with the apostles. And the apostles were the ones that were the final authorities, the apostles and the elders that were at Jerusalem. It reads in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas in sharp 
dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go out to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about the question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the brethren, our believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe God, who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The word of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent, its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and, it, and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So it was adjudicated here. The apostles and the elders told them what it should be as far as following circumcision or not. They said, no, you don't have to do this. God called them as they were, and he gave them the Holy Spirit. So the apostles were the final authority. It's like in the United States, we have three branches of government that are the final authority. Some people think, no, it's the Supreme Court. It is not the Supreme Court alone. It is the Supreme Court, it is the president, and it is the Congress. They are three equal branches. And just because one of the branches says this particular law is illegal, the president could come along and say, no, it's constitutional. And there could be a constitutional crisis. They are co-equal. And so they are the final authority, but the one above all of them is the Constitution itself. And so you make an appeal to the Constitution. That is our final authority as far as our country is concerned. And in the church, it is the apostles who are the final authority. So when you read about this, uh, this idea of the apostles, well, who can be an apostle? Who are the apostles? Are there only 12 apostles? Were there originally 13 because Judas was one and then he lost his position and then they replaced him with Matthias? Is that how it works? Is there more than that? Well, of course, 
Scripture tells us there are more than 12 apostles. Romans chapter 16, verse 7. Andronicus and Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles. So those two individuals are called apostles. And also Barnabas and Paul, they are called apostles as well. And facts about apostles, it tells us in Scripture that in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, he appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. So one of the primary tasks of apostle is he goes and he preaches the word of God. That's what he does. Now, there are all kinds of people that preach the word of God, but they are not apostles. Secondly, they had to be chosen by Jesus himself in Acts chapter 1, verse 2, until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And so God chooses the apostles. Some people would say, well, today God chooses the apostles just like he chooses those who are going to be saved. And of course, this is true that all who are saved are chosen by God himself. But also the requirement was set forth in Acts chapter 1, verse 21, that they were a witness of the resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, it says in verse 21 of Acts 1, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time The Lord Jesus went in and out amongst us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And of course, they picked Matthias. He was with them the whole time. Now, the Apostle Paul was also chosen by God, and he was around the area. He knew what was going on. I am positive he saw Jesus in the flesh. And we know at his conversion, he saw Jesus when nobody else did. But the others heard the voices which are there. Now, all of these things, they can be debated. They will preach Christ. They're chosen by Jesus himself. And they had to be a witness of the resurrection. Somebody could come along and say, I've seen the resurrected Christ. And then they would say, well, I'm an apostle because he appeared to me, that type of thing. And there are plenty of stories in the Middle East of Muslims getting saved that said Jesus appeared to them. But these things also accompany an apostle. In Acts chapter 5, verse 12, says, The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people in Second Corinthians twelve twelve. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. And so we also know that they had to have seen Jesus, and Paul saw Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1 says, Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? So he was a witness of that. But the final thing here is, they are the foundation of the church, and the church universal. Ephesians 2.19 says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And so if somebody wants to say they're an apostle, well, did you help establish scripture? Did you see the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Has he appeared to you? Are you part of the foundation of the church? And if somebody says, well, we're establishing a church elsewhere. No, it's God who builds the church. It's God who has set it up. So if somebody wants to be contentious about this, the final thing I would ask him is what miracle have you performed lately? And they might say, well, people get saved. And I've prayed for people to be healed of cold and flu. And I would like to see a miracle like somebody getting up out of a wheelchair and both limbs restored. I would like to see eyes 
that have sight that were previously denied sight. These are the types of miracles that an apostle would perform. And so if somebody claims to be an apostle, that would be the final thing that I would ask of them. I don't believe that apostles are for today. The foundation of the church has been set. And those in this life that would refer to themselves as an apostle in the biblical sense are taking a position that they were not appointed to by Christ, in my opinion. Then secondly, there are the prophets. Now you might ask, are there prophets today? There are people that call themselves prophets. Are they part of the church? Are they outside the church? I actually had a visit a few weeks ago by somebody who claimed to be a prophet. I still have his card inside of my wallet. And uh, he wanted me to join him in his prophetic adventures. And I said, uh, no thanks, maybe some other time. But he came along and he proclaimed himself to be a prophet. Well, what does scripture say about this? Are there prophets today? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29, it talks about prophets when they speak, that others inside the church should weigh carefully what is said. Acts chapter 13, verse 1, it says in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. There was Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius, or Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up in, with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, all of these were prophets. Acts chapter 15, verse 32, there was Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets. And by the way, they were the two that were sent back to deliver the message from James and Peter as they spoke about being circumcised that it's not necessary to be saved. So they accompanied Paul, but they were also prophets. And so uh, the apostles sent back the next level of authority. Not the next level as far as worth is concerned, but the next level of authority, they sent them back to establish the word. They sent two prophets. In Acts chapter 21, verse 10, after we have been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. So there are prophets all over the New Testament church. Now, some would also say, as I previously stated, that they were part of the foundation of Ephesians chapter 2. Jesus is the chief cornerstone, and Jesus was the ultimate prophet. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, he speaks to us personally. And we know that the prophets did tremendous amount of good. And this is before the New Testament was available to us. Now, for me, when I look at this, I say, okay, there are prophets everywhere in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. It doesn't seem as, as if the office goes away. And to understand what a prophet does and who a prophet is, a prophet is one who does forth-telling the Word of God, where he just explains what the Word of God is. He explains what God has spoken to him to everybody else. And there's words of prophecy that are given, and I've experienced some of that. People have spoken, and I've listened to it, and it, it's just a tremendous word. It's uplifting uh, it, you can tell it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Like I said, I've experienced that personally where somebody has done that, people have done that, and I've heard it uh, with my own ears, and it's great. But there are those also that foretelling is a part of being a prophet, where you describe what is going to take place in the future. Now, if somebody wants to say a prophet is one who foretells, that is fine. I, I don't have an issue with that. There's the gift of prophecy as well. And, and as far as it being an office, I'm really not going to debate if that is an office for that individual who does the forth telling. 
but it would certainly be an office for an individual who does a foretelling, the things that are ahead, and they spell it out specifically. If somebody does that and they are accurate 100% of the time, I will certainly say that they are a prophet in the biblical sense of holding the office of a prophet. And we know that from Scripture there are some that say, and we'll get into it in the next chapter, that where there is knowledge, knowledge will cease And where there are tongues, tongues will be stilled. So there's going to come an end to certain gifts uh, in the New Testament. But I believe it's towards the end um, uh, during the tribulation and afterwards. We're not going to uh, have to worry about knowledge anymore. The Holy Spirit will imbue us with whatever we need to know when we need to know it. And we will know everyone in heaven. We will know them on a first name basis because the Holy Spirit has given us that knowledge. And in a sense, that's prophetic. God speaks to us. We know what is going on. But as far as this office is concerned, has the office ceased like knowledge is going to cease, like tongues are going to be stilled? Has that been the case? Well, I know that there is an example in Revelation chapter 11, verse 10, it says, The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. So they are two in the future who will foretell what is going to take place. So the office is in existence at the end of time as well as the beginning of the church, the end of time as far as here on earth in this dispensation. And so whether or not the office is there, I would just say, well, uh, tell me, any miracles that you have performed lately, any foretelling that has uh, taken place, uh, that an event was supposed to happen and you prophesied it perfectly, if that has taken place, I'm going to say, okay, you have the office of a prophet. And Deuteronomy tells us in chapter 18 and verse 21 and 22, if a prophet delivers a message and it comes true, then he is, in fact, of the office of a prophet. But if it does not, it says in the end part of verse 22 of Deuteronomy 18, that prophet has spoken presumptuously, do not be afraid of him. And in fact, if they were wrong, they were commanded to be stoned. So if a prophet wants to stick his neck out and take a chance of getting stoned, if you're in the nation of Israel back in that time, hey, great. Well, that that same type of fear should grip the individual who calls themselves a prophet. Then third, there are teachers. Now, notice you have apostles, you have prophets, then you have teachers. Remember, this is a line of authority, not a line of worth. It's a line of authority. So the teachers are above the miracle workers because there are those who can perform miracles, just as the Apostle Paul was talking about, as we just read. Are there miracles being performed today? Well, not so much here in the United States, although there, there's the possibility of that. It's usually some uh, faraway country, some in, in a jungle somewhere where God wants to establish his word. But the teachers come in authority before miracle workers. Some people go to church just for the experience. They want the experience, but they don't want the knowledge so much. They want to experience God and all that he has with the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, being filled with love. They want to speak in tongues. They want to prophesy. They want to interpret all of those things. And they do that to the neglect of the word. And the word takes precedent. And the teacher of the word takes precedent. And above them is the prophet. And above them is the apostle. 
And so if somebody comes along and says, well, you need to get in touch with the Spirit of God, I know that's what the Scripture says, but you know, there's new revelation out there, and the teacher is the one responsible for saying, no, that is not the case. You are not to listen to the miracle worker if it violates the Word of God. If he says that something is taking place inside of the church, you need to go back up the chain if you find that that thing that is happening inside the church is in error according to the word. And that's the job of teachers. They're to teach proper doctrine. Even Paul told Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely, because if you do, you'll save not only yourselves, but your hearers as well. And it doesn't diminish the job of the miracle worker, but the miracle worker needs to know that if he is not or she is not a teacher of some kind, that they refer back to those who are teachers and to the word of God to establish what is proper doctrine. If you don't do this, It's kind of like going to Ikea. You go to Ikea and you meander through all the different rooms in Ikea and you buy some furniture and it comes in a box that you have to pull out down below by the cash registers and you get the numbered boxes and you put them on a cart and you roll the cart out and you take it home. Once you open it up... You find the instructions. The instructions are there. You have all the parts. It's all good. But you have to follow the instructions. If you don't follow the instructions, could you imagine putting together a piece of furniture without those instructions? All the little parts that are in there, all the dowels and the screws and the fasteners that are in there and the little plugs, and you're trying to guess where they're going. You go, I think it goes here if you're not using the instruction manual. And at the end of all that, if it's, a, if it's a complicated piece of furniture, it's not going to be quite right. And at the end, you're going to say, why do I have leftover screws and dowels? This is probably not the way it's supposed to be. And so you have to open up the instruction manual. This is how it's supposed to be ordered. As an example of this from Scripture, you also have in, in the book of 1 Corinthians the misuse of the gifts. Uh, when you came into the church, they would break out into speaking in tongues, everybody at once. And God says through Paul in the book of Corinthians, two should speak, two are at the most, three should speak in a tongue and there should always be an interpretation. They weren't doing that. They were taking the Ikea uh, piece of uh, furniture and they're sticking it together without going to the instruction manual first. Or take another example. Now, I have a, a couple of grandsons. And one of the grandsons is really into Legos. He has all these little build Legos in his room. And when he gets another one, he gets real excited. And so I sat down. I was over at his house, and I sat down with them, and we started building this Lego set together. And I looked at it, and it was so complicated. And you had to find each one of the parts and put them together in order, save some to the side after you've clipped them together, and then put them on the main body of whatever it is you were building, whether it's a vehicle or a plane or whatever it might be. I cannot imagine trying to do that, looking at the picture without the instruction. If you don't have the Word of God... It is the picture, it is the directions which are there. It shows you exactly what you're supposed to do. If you don't do that, you are surely going to mess up the Lego toy that you're putting together. And so that's why the workers of miracles, it's wonderful. They have all the parts, they're in the body of Christ, they have this gift, but it needs to operate according to what the scripture has to say. If it's not operating that way, you're doing a disservice 
to the body of Christ and to those outside the church as well. Remember, Paul said in the book of Corinthians that if all of you speak in a tongue like this, a stranger will come in from the outside and think you're all crazy. And he says, don't do that. And so he gives instruction. But there are people that I've talked to, and they say, no, it doesn't matter. You get it, need to get in touch with the Spirit of God and what the Spirit of God is doing today. It's a new time. Ixnay on that. That's a little pig Latin there. But we're not supposed to follow that type of example. We're supposed to follow what the Word has to say. And to know what the Word has to say, God has set up teachers inside the body of Christ. And then the worker, workers of miracles, they come along, they confirm the power of God. They're the ones that demonstrate that God is able to do the miraculous, whether it's causing a, a jar not to run out of flour, he can do that easily, or a container not to run out of oil, or one container when you start pouring oil out of it, it just keeps on flowing, that type of thing. We know that this happened in the Old Testament. And so the workers of miracles, they are critical. But if you have... The gift of healing, if you need to go to somebody and you don't have a teacher or a prophet or an apostle, you go to a worker of miracles because they should be well acquainted with the word of God as well. And that's the next one, the gift of healing. And they show compassion of the word of God. Jesus, when he would come to Capernaum, we are told in scripture that he healed everybody who came to him. That could have been hundreds or thousands of people that he either touched or spoke to and they were completely healed. And he did it, Scripture says, because he had compassion on them. So the person with the gift of healing, they need to refer to those who work miracles, those who are teachers, those who are prophets, and what the Word of God says given to us by the apostles. If we don't do that, the person with the gift of healing may have compassion in some area that they should not have compassion in. It needs to be brought in. One uh, way that is contemporary with the way we are living today is those who are confusing uh, teenagers and preteens that their gender is not what they were born with and they encourage them in that because of their heart of compassion. And healers have a tendency to have a heart of compassion. And that compassion in the world is misdirected. And so we want to have the proper view of compassion according to what the Bible teaches. If something is wrong, we want to call it wrong. But the person with the gift of healing, they're filled with compassion. They look at the world and they want to help them in some way. They want to minister to them in some way. But do it according to the way the word has to uh, spell out for us. Then there are those who help others. Now, this is the love of God. Those who may not be a speaker inside the church, those who may not lead a Bible study, uh, it's okay. Those who do not work miracles, they just like going and helping people. They do things for people. It's often associated those with the gift of helps. They have maybe a gift of mercy along with that, that they, they want to help somebody. They don't want to judge them according to their sins. They're just looking for some way to assist them in their lives. And we run a danger in doing this, for instance, when it comes to the homeless. We may help them in some way. We may give them something, but we do nothing for their spiritual advantage, which enables them to stay exactly where they are, and they never improve whatsoever. 
Uh, in Lakeside here, I know that there have been homeless that have been cleared out of the riverbed over here in the San Diego River where it begins. And some people say, well, don't do that. You have to have a heart of compassion. You can't relate to who they are. No, it's a heart of compassion to assist them in getting out of there, to almost compel them. You can't force them, but you do what you can to get them out of there. So the person with the gift of helps, they can have a tendency to do things wrong, just like a teacher. If he doesn't do things right, according to the word of God, he needs to be instructed by another teacher, just as Peter was rebuked by Paul because of the way he was living and and how he told the Gentiles to live as a Jew, and he was wrong in that. So we keep each other accountable in that way. But the person who wants to help others, and they are vital in the body of Christ, love is a verb, and they love on people by doing things for them. Then there are those with gifts of administration who see things in columns and rows and the way that they're supposed to be set up. And there's an order in which church is to be run and operated, and even the service and all of that. And as I previously stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we'll see where God says that. Our God is a God of order. And the person with the gift of administration, they are so vital to the church. They keep things in balance. They see where there is a deficit and they bring that up to make it equal with all the other parts of the church. And then there are those who have the gift of tongues. They have been filled with the Spirit and that is a benefit to the church. And also those with the uh, ability to interpret tongues. But here we just have a hierarchical list of where the authority in the church comes from and we're always supposed to defer to that. And even teachers themselves, they're to refer back to what the prophets and the apostles and also Moses, what he said in the Old Testament. We're to refer back to all of those. If somebody is a teacher, that's where we're to go. And so they show, these people with the gift of tongues, they show that they have the Spirit of God in them because they have this miraculous gift. But tongues is the least of all the gifts. And the church in Corinth was taking tongues and making it the greatest of all the gifts. And then he finishes this chapter up with a couple of statements here in verses 29 through 31. He says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? This is what is known as a rhetorical question. The answer is no, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. And now I will show you the most excellent way. Now, the way that the church in Corinth was operating in the gifts and the the importance they were placing upon people, it was in error, but we see it is the endowment of these gifts that is given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. People are endowed with all these gifts, whether it's the apostle down to the tongues or whatever else it might be. But the motivation for the gifts is spelled out in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Of course, we know that that is the love chapter. But with all this that we have learned, the the gifts that we are given, and he will go on to explain a little bit more the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecies in chapter 14. A whole chapter pretty much is devoted to that because the church was in such error in the operation of those specific gifts, even though there were the super apostles and there were divisions inside the church and all of that, he focuses in chapter 14 on those things. But our motivation is to be in the mode of love. 
that we are to operate and do nothing out of the confines of love. And we don't want to misinterpret what love is. Love is spelled out for us. In the love that's in 1 Corinthians, it is the obligatory, just the facts man type of description of what love is. Love is patient and love is kind and it does not keep records of wrongs committed against it. And all of those things, if you're loving, you will fulfill what is spelled out in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But oftentimes we look at love in a way that, no, it's romantic love. I feel all ugly on the inside or I think one cartoon from long, long ago uh, it would be called Twitter-pated. If you feel Twitter-pated on the inside, you get this emotional rush. And those feelings, especially when someone is young, they can rise to the top and dominate everything in the life of somebody who is a teenager especially and into the early 20s. As you get older, that, that feeling mellows a little bit, just like everything else in somebody who becomes old. It, it just mellows somewhat. But when an uh, individual is young, that love, they look at it as passion and strength and drive. And that is Song of Solomon type of love. But the love that is delivered to us in 1 Corinthians is more of the obligatory type of love. If you're acting in love, these are the things that you would do if you were a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so there is a distinction there, and we'll get into that distinction a little more next week. But my prayer for all of you who are tuning in and the few who are here in the sanctuary is that you're able to operate in your gifts with the motivation of love. And I pray that you already know what your gift is and that you would seek to fan into flame that gift. That means exercising the gift, making it hot like a fire. If you have a fire and you're fanning the flame or you're blowing on the fire, the fire kind of rages a little bit and it provides more heat to more who are sitting around the fire. And that's God's intent is that everybody uses their gift, they exercise it, and by doing so, bring comfort to the body of Christ and direction. Now, what we're going to do, I'm going to close out this portion of the service, and then I'm going to switch over to Zoom, and the Zoom link is listed on the website. You're able to go to that. And one final word about the, the website. Uh, if Those of you who have been giving, and you uh, thank you for all of that, uh, comes in usually by mail. Uh, that's great, but we also now have PayPal if you'd like to do that, and I'm just mentioning that just for your knowledge. So what I'd like to do is, is pray and close out this portion of the service and switch over to Zoom. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessings that you have brought to us. We ask that you would help us to recognize our gifts as well as walk in them, operate inside of those gifts, that we might bless others, bring warmth and comfort to those who are around us. Help us not to be complacent. Help us not to worry about what is going on in this life. But help us just to rest in you and seek to do your will. As we see the, the world is literally sliding towards hell, we ask that you would help us to be a light, to be a beacon, a, a city set on a hill that people can come to and be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen.